Welcome to the Lumpin' Week in Review. This is the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, we heard from the journalist who sued to obtain the footage of the Laquan McDonald killing. We discussed the growing mayoral race in our city, and we learned about voter suppression effort in America that threatens our democracy. All this plus the Trump Diaries, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for September 28, 2018. Melanie Adcock chatted with Brandon Smith, the award-winning investigative journalist who broke open the Laquan McDonald case. Smith discussed the surveillance technology now in use across America, the implications for policing and citizens, and how the McDonald tapes changed the city of Chicago. Taxine Chicago with Melanie Adcock airs every Friday at 1 p.m. I met our guest before his big story broke in the tech world as an activist who was involved with civic tech initiatives. And today we are going to discuss his story and insights of Brandon Smith, the independent journalist who helped Laquan McDonald video get released to the public through a Freedom of Information Act request that led to the suing of the city of Chicago. We're going to discuss this the mindset of today's activists, and how technology is being used to create change in government, civic improvements, and exposing the problem areas of society's trusted officials and infrastructure. Brandon, welcome to the show. Hey, Melody. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm a journalist, and I write for all kinds of different outlets, whoever is best for what story I'm working on. Mm-hmm. So um, whether that's ProPublica or Washington Post or... Uh, some some Chicago-based outlet. Um, for for the Laquan story initially, I wrote in The Reader and then uh, uh, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, and The Daily Beast. Mm-hmm. But here I'm doing reporting on the Jason Van Dyke trial for Shadowproof. It's a, it's a blog. And so anyone who'd like to read my piece, my first piece up, uh, summarizing the first couple of days of trial, it's, it is on Shadowproof. Now you can learn more about it. Oh, cool. And then um, now can, can you explain your role in, in breaking open the Laquan McDonald case and making this difficult to watch video go public and, and, and your experience with that? Well, um, yeah, my, my background is in journalism. I worked for papers in Ohio for six years. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that's, that's where I grew up. Mm-hmm. But, um, but then I came here for college and, uh, and stayed here. Uh, more or less as a freelance journalist. So I had been in the habit of filing FOIA requests. I ended up suing for a couple of those because the responses did not seem adequate to me or or sometimes they just ignored me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I was talking with, with an activist about Holman Square, this police facility on the west side where um, the Guardian reporters had, had showed they denied thousands of people the opportunity to talk to a lawyer, uh, Thousands. Yeah, yeah. The records records show that pretty clearly, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was talking to an activist, and um, you know, this was in uh, early 2015. Uh, not a lot of folks were really in tight with with activists as sources, and and using them as uh, as folks who really know what's going on, you know, and and can can uh, are, are a lot of times activists are very willing to do the kind of really hard, uh, really boring work of journalism that is like reading lots and lots of of documents, you know, mm. and finding the needle in the haystack. The tedious work. Yeah. They, they've, they've found it, you know, sometimes. And so anyway, I was talking with this guy, Will Calloway. Mm-hmm. He learned I had sued for FOIAs and he said, hey, there's this one about this shooting that 
that probably should be sued for. So, so I took a look at Laquan McDonald and, and here we are. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so, yeah, you, so you had a little bit of experience and you found the, the big one that the public, I guess, really needed to know about. Um, now, can, can you tell us about the police car um, and the dash cam technology and how that works, how the, how the video came to, to be? Well, the big question about uh, dash cams, unfortunately, was not answered in uh, too many folks' satisfaction in the trial this past week. Um, mm-hmm. the, the prosecution brought in a witness uh, who at the time was, uh, and in fact, I think still is the one of the primary people who check police cars, uh, cameras, for whether they're functional. Mm-hmm. And uh, he testified on the stand this week that um, probably greater than 50% of the audio in any given day of checking cameras was not working. Mm. So, you know, a lot of folks, myself included, were doubtful that all seven cameras audio was just mysteriously missing. Um, so we we wondered what whether any audio had been captured and, and whether someone was trying to hide it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's it, to me, it's just as likely that it just literally just wasn't working on all those cameras, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, that said, there's a lot of tech uh, questions today about policing and cameras. You've got, um, you have cameras facing out onto the street and the sidewalk just about everywhere. Um, there are more cameras here than in London. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, that is, you know, and London has, was previously known as kind of the, the camera capital of the world. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so there's very little information known about what police do with that footage, how much of it is fed into, say, facial recognition mm-hmm. software that is automatically, you know, pinpoints where a person is at any given time. And so with, with that software, you could uh, input your identity, for instance, and the police department and whoever has access to that is going to know uh, where you've been or where you've been spotted on the street. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that has the potential to uh, be essentially uh, a question of civil rights, you know, and privacy rights. Um, another thing that police often like to talk about uh, because it, it, it tends to benefit police it, it mm-hmm. is um, body cameras, Um their right. their use has has exploded since uh, since 2014 when Laquan was shot and and the end of 2015 when the video came out, um, and you know theoretically you would want all interactions with police to be filmed and so that's that's why it's sometimes confusing for folks who are um, let's say an activist and they're seeking justice for for all these situations where police uh, overuse force, let's say. Well, what really matters with the body cams is who controls that footage mm-hmm. and and what the kind of um, custody of ownership is. And if that custody of ownership is kind of broken uh, and something goes missing, um, you know, who is responsible and what penalties are there for that, uh, you know, that. So all over the country, we've seen a lot of 
footage and audio especially go missing. And, you know, it's, it's almost like it's no one's fault. And that's a real problem. You know, mm-hmm. there need to be very hard and fast rules about custody, chain mm-hmm. of custody, I guess you would call it. It is interesting. And, it, you know, Brandon, they, they say that violence hasn't changed, but the only difference is that now it's being recorded. How do you feel about statements like that? Uh, well, who's, who's the they in that question? Yeah. The recording seems to be um, raising the issue of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that's what that statement's referring to. The, mm-hmm. the fact that uh, folks in power in the city and the police, let's say, have, have long been able to uh, claim that it's not happening. Right, but mm-hmm. but now we know that it is, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, frankly, um, shootings of police in Chicago, uh, anyway, have gone down slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, f- it it was slightly more than one a week, one shooting per week in Chicago for twenty five years, something like that, uh, according to reporting done by the Reader. Wow. Um, years. And then, and then in the past few years, it's gone down to maybe once every two or three weeks, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. But it's still it's still quite a lot. I mean, the statistics I use as to why police violence is an issue and should remain a large issue until it's mostly solved is eight um, percent uh, of male homicides uh, in America are committed by police. So 8% of killings of men are, wow. are done by police. And uh, the other one was a, a kind of meta study in the magazine Granta um, found that of all the people in America killed by folks they don't know, mm-hmm. you know, that is like eliminating, you know, uh, domestic violence mostly and somewhat uh, gang violence where you're where you know very well who's who's shooting you. Um, if you eliminate that, uh, one in three people in America killed by people they don't know are killed by police. Like a random homicide. homicide. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, That's... I wouldn't call it random well, well. because, you know, yeah. police operate in very specific ways and, you know, they are dispatched in very specific ways. So mm. it's a system. Yes. It really is. My goodness! Well, oof. well, and, and uh, now uh, some some very interesting statistics here. Now, as far as the technology, we talked about body cams and, and dash cams, but well, what about some of the other tools that the Chicago Police Force uh, uses, such as stingrays and other similar equipment like that? Um, it's a it's a problem. Um, mm-hmm. I. <sighs> Years ago, I had been involved in some kind of transparency pushes for documents on stingrays and their kind of uh, newer cousin, the hailstorm is what that's called. Um, For those listeners who don't know what they are, um, documents have from inside police and other law enforcement bodies have revealed what these things are, and they, they essentially take all the traffic from a cell phone signal and uh, and copy it and attempt to analyze it automatically. I guess they would have software doing that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but the device itself is about the size of a suitcase, the Stingray thing, and it can suck up, uh, suck up cell traffic, all cell traffic within, I think, a mile radius, something like that. 
Mm-hmm. So that's that's quite a lot, you know, tens of thousands of people in, in dense cities like this. Um, it, it does that by impersonating a cell phone tower, a legitimate one that your device would connect to. Uh, and basically, the, the t- for the techie out there, it's you would call it a man-in-the-middle attack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> basically mm-hmm. hacking, but it's on the part of the police. And, um, you know, they pay a couple hundred thousand dollars for these devices. They get them from a company. There's just one company in Florida that makes them. And, uh, and yeah, these are our tax dollars at work. And, and so the the question is how they remain legal after decisions like the one in 2014 the, the supreme court of the united states in 2014 ruled that um we have a privacy interest in the data on our cell phones and in the traffic going to and from our cell phones um and that that was done in the case of a gentleman who was arrested and then police copied all of the stuff that was on his cell phone Mm-hmm. And he he sued, claiming that was unlawful. It violated his privacy, and and the Supreme Court said he was he was right. They they ruled in his favor. And so, if you have a privacy interest in your cell data after you're arrested, mm-hmm. that's what the case ruled, right? Well, why don't you have it before you're arrested? That is the case with these stingrays. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make much sense to this observer. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, but, I, I had a long list of questions I was uh, going to ask you. I think you've asked one of the most interesting questions of our whole show just uh, just now with that. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's an issue that's not been addressed yet. It's basically a, a loophole in this Supreme Court case law, and they have not taken it up yet. I think, you know— it will it will largely depend on who fills Scalia's vacant seat. Radio Free spoke with Brian Sleet about the burgeoning Chicago mayoral race. Sleet discussed Tony Preckwinkle's campaign, whether or not there is quote-unquote daily fatigue, and if the eventual winner is even in the race yet. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time at 4. Brian, welcome. (laughs) Hey, great to see you guys. Thank you so much for coming. You know, why don't we jump right into it? I mean, this is obviously a very interesting time uh, for Chicago politics. It's kind of a crazy time. Uh, We now have, what, 16 candidates are in the race for mayor? Is that correct? I think it's like 22. Maybe. I think at least 16 have declared or come out and said they're going to. Everybody from Omar and Aya to Willie Wilson to some, some perennial candidates that I'm probably not even thinking about. But also some big dogs. We know that Tony Proenkel is going to announce on Thursday. She said that. Uh, Bill Daly announced on Monday on WGN. Uh, Gary Chico announced today. Gary Chico announced today. Of course, Jerry McCarthy is, is already in, and he's been uh, he's been on Lumpen Radio, actually. He's uh, announced his candidacy. 
Uh, what is your take on the the state of the political landscape? Because to an outsider, I would think it seems fairly uh, what's the word chaotic is the word I'm thinking. Yeah, and I think to insiders it seems chaotic. Um, at this point, it is uh, it's fairly ludicrous. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, look, basically, one of the issues that like you know Chicago has is that you know we always laugh about it. like people my age you know like used to think that uh like the mayor's like the title was mayor daily right mm-hmm. you know because you didn't really there was know nobody else right, right. And, and and so and so I think like people haven't really thought about what it takes to be in that job in that position things like that and so we have a bunch of like one issue candidates or small candidates and things like that and so Right now, we're just getting some people who could actually uh, run a government, getting into the race. And so it'll be a lot more interesting. I mean, we, we can guarantee that most of these people won't make the ballot. Um, but, you know, it, it is still going to be an interesting conversation as it goes through. Uh, I expect we're probably going to see one or two other notable names get in the race. And, you know, from there, we'll figure it out. Brian, I think that's a, a good point. You know, all the names that have been floated, all the names people who have officially announced, you know, the, the big barrier, as you just noted, is is actually being on the ballot, actually getting through uh, the petition process, which, you know, you need um, a minimum of, say, 13,000 uh, good votes, 12,500 roughly. And, uh, and, and that is an enormous challenge for candidates, even in a, a non-crowded field. Yeah, no, I mean... It's, it's going to be an enormous challenge. And, you know, what people don't think about is that mayor's races in Chicago are always difficult anyway because they come so close after the governor's race. And, you know, even though it seems like a sure thing, you know, all the polls and everyone says that, like, JV's a sure thing, Rauner has a lot of money. Right. And so we've got to assume that he's going to flood a lot of commercials JB is going to flood a lot more commercials. And so this certain thing happens every year, every time the city elections come up. By the end of the November elections, everybody's sick and tired of politics because they've been flooded with TV and mail and all these things. So they don't want to hear about anything for at least two, three weeks, like at (laughs) all. Okay. Right. And then it's Thanksgiving. (laughs) Right. Right. And then you're getting into Christmas. Right. And so pretty much you're a person, if you're not well known already, you have two months to run for mayor. Which actually, I mean, that sounds like a great thing. I wish political campaigns, candidly, were a little bit shorter. I think it would be a better thing for our system. But I, I take your point, and I, I think of some candidates who I think are physically challenged also. That's got to be very difficult for them. You know, uh, there's some people out there who I, I think have put forward some good ideas. There's some guys who are uh, probably, as you said, a one-issue candidate. But it's a real challenge to even get your message across if you can't get the bare minimum of uh, FaceTime with newspapers and stuff like that because everything's so crowded out with other politicians. You're correct in identifying, you know, JB and, and Rauner's the big dog fight this year. There's no question about it. And, uh, you know, if polling's to be believed, JB is is he's got a pretty solid lead in place, but, you know, it's going to tighten uh, as we get uh, closer. Um is that race in any way, does that have any effect on what happens here in the city of Chicago, Brian? It's going to have some effect, but like I think the main effect is going to be just people won't hear what you're talking about. Like people who are trying to make a point about the city of Chicago, right. like they're not focused on it because 
you're going to have like 800 commercials with Mike Madigan's name in it, right. <laughs> you know, between the attorney general's race and the governor's race. And so by the time people are actually able to focus on like what's going on, uh, you know, people aren't going to hear. And so that's the thing, like candidates who have some good ideas, it's going to be really hard for them to get out there. So it's like if you're really not able to get on the ground and mm-hmm. be in houses and get in places, you're going to have some challenges. And, I mean, how much – I mean, obviously, JB and, and, and Ron are sucking a lot of the oxygen out of the room. But is there an advantage or was there an advantage for guys like Gary McCarthy to come out early and make an announcement and start fundraising? Because he has started racking up some checks, which it may yeah. help him. No, I mean, yeah, I think it was definitely an advantage. But, I like, I don't know. I, I just see Gary McCarthy as a flawed candidate. I, I don't see how he survives the Jason Van Dyke trial. Uh, I don't disagree with you, but I mean, he, he does seem to also be a candidate that would be attractive to certain parts of the North Shore, certain parts of the far south side, certain parts of, of Midway and Marquette Park. Uh, there There is a constituency that does want a law and order candidate. No, yeah, no, yeah. like, no, his, I mean, there's a reason why he like. So the danger that we have in this race right now and what makes it so up in the air is that you have so many candidates that have real constituencies. Right. And so there's a lot of people who could get 15-plus percent of the vote. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to see who makes the runoff right? because it could split a lot of different ways um, because you have people who have name ID who have, like, a built-in base and who could put together something that's reasonable. Uh, and But the question is, who do you see that can get 50 percent? Like, that's why I always thought Ron was going to win. Right. Because there was no way on earth that, like, a Gary McCarthy voter was going to vote for Lori Lightfoot. Correct. Yeah. Or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Or probably for Tony Previnkle. Right. No, I mean, it's it's like Ron was the lesser of two evils. Like, any way you mapped it out, when Mm -hmm. it got to a runoff, Ron was going to be the lesser of two evils enough to get 50 percent. I didn't see who else could get 50 percent of the vote. Let's back up a little bit. Why? why, I'm sorry, John, not to catch up. But why why is Ron not running? Is it the Jason Van Dyke case? Uh, I honestly don't know why he's not running. You know, one of the things we joke about is that anybody who's worked in government, you know, you actually don't really need a reason to decide you don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) 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 Have you done this job? (laughs) Like, okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend all of my time raising a whole bunch of money uh, and working 20-hour days so that people can talk bad about me. Right, right. And I'm going (laughs) to give all the money to consultants. (laughs) Right, exactly. Give all the money to consultants. So I can get called corrupt, crooked, and all these other things. Right. And, you know, whatever. And so it's like, and, and so it's understandable. But, like, I mean, like, so I don't know. I don't have any special connection or relationship with Rom to know. But I could also see a world where it's saying, like, as hard as this race was going to be with the Jason Van Dyke, with some of the other things that were going on, just to have a situation where you win. And if you win, you're still, like, you're considered a lame duck because nobody thinks he would run again. Right. And so it's just like so everything would be a fight, and there's a lot of there's still a lot of things we have to pay for, and so. Right. Kyle, oh, like your life depends on it. It's frozen, Kyle. It's frozen solid, Kyle. That's, uh, we'll just have to slide our way there. Gee, 
We've yeah. got to go back. It's like four degrees. Uh, this you, is, you got no gravel in your guts. This is just stupid yeah, and we're, dangerous. We're helping like the else. environment, you understand? <laughs> All right, set it up. Come on. We're venturing down Bubbly Creek to 35th Street to do some ice ditching. It's, it's way too cold for this. Ice ditching can only be performed in a deep freeze. We're now man up and shove up, please. We're sliding down a frozen river on a mattress strapped to six tires. It's a boat. It's a mattress. Today it's a boat. It's just... Whatever this is, it's wrong, man. Stop inside, Petrowski. What? It's a cell phone. Grab it. It looks like one of them smartphones. Yeah, right over there. Okay, got it. Got it. Here. Good. Here you go. I think that was a good time to remind our listeners that whatever we're doing this... It is not safe, and it should only be performed by professionals like us. And mutiny is also punishable by death, FYI. Back to it. You want to sing songs? So what is ice stitching, and how does it help the environment? I mean, we don't have an auger, a tackle, no rod. That's right. We just have a 10-gallon bucket and a coal shovel and a bike sickle for some reason. Cut the sails, drop the anchor, we've made it. Uh, all right, which one of these is your make-believe anchor? Is it the shovel, the bucket, or the bike? The one with the chain on it, come on. The bike, okay, it's the bike. Take the bucket, Trotsky, I got this. Ice stitching is a scavenging technique, and it don't have nothing to do with no fishes, so don't think we're going to be fishing. On the banks of Bubbly Creek right here by 35th Street okay, are many hidden gems. These discoveries come in all forms such as the cell phone we just found. There you have it. I'm impressed and actually very relieved that right. you're so into the revitalization that's well, going on around here. I, is there a website uh, where people can go to help uh, clear debris from the uh, in and around Bubbly Creek? I, I mean, it's not really debris so much. What? What? I mean, well, the cell phone is worth something, or at least useful. How is that not debris? We, I mean, we only pick up the valuable stuff, like the cell phone. Uh, you see, some people will throw stuff out the cars, like phones, cash, lighters, mixed CDs, suitcases, wallets, little bags of powder, wedding rings, all sorts of things that you could use or sell, you know what I mean? We're garbage picking? Ice ditching. What was that? For a high reward, there's always a high risk, John. That it's, was the creek belching from the ghost sheets of all the slaughtered animals that were dumped here back in the day. Thank goodness it's froze really thick. Oh, oh, Kyle. Oh, oh, grab my shovel. Oh, grab oh, my man. shovel, Kyle. Oh. Oh, Kyle, Row after stand me. up. No, really no, no just stand up. Get your feet away. under it, oh. Kyle. Oh, Come on. Gosh. Oh, no. I'm still sliding. What's going on? This hey. is very slippery. I'm going to head back to the co-pro. Why don't you use your treasures to call yourself a cab? I'm out of here, man. That'd be nice if it would stay frozen all the time. That way, you see, nothing would sink into the creek. But uh, you gotta do what you gotta do. Back to John Daly and other morons over at What's It Called.
This week on The Trump Diaries, Trump runs smack into Me Too as nominee Brett Kavanaugh is hit not by one, but three sexual harassment allegations. Stormy Daniels' lawyer goes on the attack. Trump tries to hurt illegal immigrants. Rod Rosenstein offered to wear a wire and seek a 25th Amendment solution. And Trump is literally laughed out of the United Nations. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 609, September 20th. The woman who has accused Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault wants the FBI to investigate her allegations before she speaks with senators. Her lawyer says that some senators, quote, have made up their minds and this would not be, quote, a fair or constructive process. Dr. Christine Blasey Ford also said she had received credible death threats and had to move out of her house. However, she reiterated that she wants to testify before Congress. One of Ford's former classmates wrote a Facebook post saying she remembers hearing about the alleged assault by Kavanaugh. Christina Miranda King says she has no first-hand information to corroborate Ford's claims. I did not know her personally, but I remember her. The incident did happen. Trump said it is, quote, very hard for me to imagine anything happened with Ford because Kavanaugh, quote, is such an outstanding man. He further went on to insist there is no role for the FBI team to investigating Ford's claim because, quote, it is not really their thing. Actually, the FBI does investigate these kinds of claims, and it is, in fact, their thing. Chuck Grassley tried to make a take-it-or-leave-it offer to Ford, in which he said Monday would be her only day to testify ahead of a confirmation hearing on Thursday. In other news, the Trump administration is unable to account for nearly 1,500 additional migrant children replaced with sponsors after leaving federal shelters. The revelation comes months after a similar admission in April concerning an initial 1,500 children. Since 2016, Health and Human Services officials have called sponsors to check on migrant children 30 days after placements. The department claims it is not legally responsible for children after they were released from government custody. And do you remember Michael Cohen? He has now met with Robert Mueller's team multiple times. Mueller's team is interested in knowing if Trump discussed the possibility of a pardon with Michael Cohen. Mueller is also looking into Cohen's ties to Russian state actors. And Spain's foreign minister said that Trump told him to, quote, build a wall across the Sahara in order to stop migrants coming in from Africa. The stunned diplomat pointed out that the Sahara was 3,000 miles long. Trump responded by saying, the Sahara border can't be bigger than our border with Mexico. It is. Day 610, September 21st. Trump finally went off the res and attacked Brett Kavanaugh's accuser. Trump said if the alleged attack, quote, was as bad as she says, charges would have been filed immediately. Why didn't someone call the FBI 36 years ago? Trump followed up by demanding Ford produce a police report so we can learn date, time, and place of the attack. Trump ended by tweeting that Kavanaugh is a fine man with an impeccable reputation who was under assault by radical left-wing politicians. Anonymous White House officials told the New York Times that, quote, you have no idea how hard they had worked to keep from Trump from attacking Dr. Ford. Hopefully you can keep it together until Monday, said an official. That's only like another 48 hours, right? Susan Collins, a key swing vote, said she was disgusted by Trump's tweets. Both her office and Dianne Feinstein's office have received death threats against her and her staff due to the allegations made by Dr. Ford. Mitch McConnell told conservative donors that in the very near future, Judge Kavanaugh will be on the U.S. Supreme Court. We're going to plow right through it and do our job. Rod Rosenstein discussed recruiting Jeff Sessions and John Kelly, the then Secretary of Homeland Security, to invoke the 25th Amendment and remove Trump from office. He also said he was willing to wear a wire to tape Donald Trump. Rosenstein called the report inaccurate and factually incorrect, adding, based on my personal dealings with the president, there is no basis to invoke the 25th Amendment. The New York Times and New Yorker stood by their stories. Trump backed off his demand to immediately classify documents related to the Russian investigation. Trump said that the Department of Justice officials told him the declassification of documents may have a perceived negative impact on the Russia probe and that he received calls from key allies who asked him not to release those documents. 
and Trump circuit, Ron DeSantis confronted another racist outburst from a member of his campaign. The Florida gubernatorial candidate has already personally slurred his black opponent, found tweets from major donor Stephen Allenbeck that used vulgar and racist language to attack Barack Obama. The language is so extreme, the FCC will not allow us to quote it here. A DeSantis spokesman denounced the language, but DeSantis did not return the donations. DeSantis has had at least five racist blow-ups in his campaign to date. Day 611, September 22nd. The United States and Mexico are prepared to move ahead on a new trade agreement without Canada. The U.S. and Canada have not agreed on terms to have an October 1st deadline, despite continuing negotiations. The Trump administration imposed sanctions against the Chinese military for purchasing fighter jets and missile systems from Russia. Those purchases breach U.S. sanctions imposed on Russia. The Chinese are demanding the sanctions be withdrawn. The Guardian reports that Russian spies hashed a plan to smuggle Julian Assange from the U.K. The plan called for Russian diplomats to take the WikiLeaks founder from Ecuador's London embassy in a diplomatic vehicle and transport him to Russia. The Department of Health and Human Services is seeking to reallocate $266 million in funds to pay for housing the immigrant children detained under Trump's separation policy. The move would strip funds from cancer and HIV AIDS research, Head Start, the NIH, and the Centers for Disease Control. Day 612, September 23rd. Trump announced that immigrants who legally use public benefits like food assistance and Section 8 housing dodgers could be denied green cards. The move could force older immigrants off Medicare D programs and push more people into poverty. Green card holders are always required to prove they are not a burden, but the USA has never ever before considered the use of other public benefits like assistance for food. ICE agents arrested 41 undocumented immigrants who came forward to care for undocumented children held in American custody. An ICE official who confirmed the arrest said the vetting, quote, served as another opportunity to track down and arrest more undocumented immigrants. Day 613, September 24th. A second woman has now accused Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault, and there are now reports of a third. The New Yorker is reporting a woman, Deborah Ramirez, claimed Kavanaugh exposed himself to her to Yale dorm party. Kavanaugh's roommate at the time said he, quote, cannot imagine Ramirez making this up, and that Kavanaugh was frequently incoherently drunk. The New Yorker is standing by its story when challenged by the Republican Party. The New York Times reported it could not corroborate the story, but added that they were in competition with the New Yorker and the Washington Post for the scoop, and that Ronan Farrow got it. Ronan Farrow has been at the forefront of the Me Too movement reporting. Kavanaugh denied Ramirez's allegation, calling it, quote, a smear, plain and simple. Kavanaugh also said, I will not be intimidated into withdrawing because of false and uncorroborated allegations against him. But more damning information on Kavanaugh would come to light. He was a member of the fraternity DKE that was later kicked off Yale's campus for disrespecting women. He was also a member of an all-male secret society called Truth and Courage, which had an obscene nickname about taking advantage of women. Author Amy Chua and her husband acted as gatekeepers for clerks at Kavanaugh's practice, and they are alleged to have told students it was, quote, not an accident that all female clerks on Kavanaugh's staff, quote, looked like models. A number of Chua's students were said to be uncomfortable with Kavanaugh's focus on their appearance. Stormy Daniels lawyer Michael Avenetti said he represents a woman with credible information about Kavanaugh and his friend Mark Judge, who Dr. Ford alleges was in the room at the time of Kavanaugh's alleged assault. Avenetti said he has significant evidence that Kavanaugh and Judge were participating in the targeting of women with alcohol and drugs. He called on his client to be included in Thursday hearings and sent a list of specific questions to head Chuck Grassley. Avenetti was subsequently contacted by the committee and asked to provide evidence. In the wake of the onslaught, Mitch McConnell took to the Senate floor to declare the Senate will move forward with a vote on Kavanaugh's nomination, accusing Democrats of running, quote, a smear campaign to derail the confirmation. 
In other Washington news, Rod Rosenstein offered to resign in discussions with John Kelly following reports he would have worn a wire and taped Trump. Rosenstein and Trump will meet on Thursday. Trump wanted to fire Rosenstein Monday in order to take Kavanaugh out of the news cycle. However, Republican consultants have been urging that Trump yank Kavanaugh's nomination. They are now seeing damage with suburban women voters. Day 614, September 25th. Brett Kavanaugh went on primetime TV with Fox News as more allegations and information swirled around the embattled Supreme Court nominee. In the interview, Kavanaugh grim-faced described when, approximately, he lost his virginity. He told the interviewer, Martha McCallum, he did not have sexual intercourse or anything close to sexual intercourse in high school or for many years thereafter. Kavanaugh also added, the truth is I've never sexually assaulted anyone in high school or otherwise. I am not questioning and have not questioned that perhaps Dr. Ford at some point in her life was sexually assaulted by someone at some place, but what I know is I've never sexually assaulted anyone. However, yet more background materials continue to emerge about Kavanaugh, including a yearbook page that slurs a woman at a nearby high school. Kavanaugh is described as a member of the Renate alumni. It is a reference to Renate Schroeder, then a student at a nearby Catholic girls' school. Two of Kavanaugh's classmates say the mentions of Renate were part of the football players' unsubstantiated boasting about their conquest. Also, Kavanaugh listed himself on the 100 Kegs or Bust Club. Renate Schroeder actually wrote a letter of recommendation for Kavanaugh before learning of the page. In a statement, she said, quote, I learned about these yearbook pages only a few days ago. The insinuation is horrible, hurtful, and simply untrue. I pray their daughters are never treated this way. Trump accused Democrats of playing a con game and using false acquisitions to derail Kavanaugh's nomination. Trump attacked Deborah Ramirez, saying she was totally inebriated and all messed up. Trump then called Kavanaugh a wonderful man and urged voters to remember the midterms. Trump then repeatedly called the accusations a con before spelling out the word C-O-N to reporters. Senator Ted Cruz was chased out of a Washington, D.C. restaurant on Monday by a group protesting Kavanaugh. Chanting, we believe survivors, the protesters from a collection of liberal groups targeted Cruz because of his seat on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Trump was laughed out of the United Nations by diplomats as he attempted to defend his America First policy. Trump said, quote, we reject the ideology of globalism and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Trump was mocked by members of the German delegation after he lied about their economy, and again by the entire General Assembly when he claimed he had, quote, accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Polling now is the Democrats with a five and six chance of taking the House back this November. The Senate continues to lean Republican with the GOP having a two and three chance to hold that chamber despite record high unfavorability ratings. These are the Trump Diaries. This is Hell chatted with historian Carol Anderson about America's new mechanisms of voter suppression. How has technology aided gerrymandering? Why have Republicans targeted vulnerable voters? And does racism still deeply permeate our political discourse? This is Hell with Chuck Mertz airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. Here to help us understand how blatant racial discrimination in voting uh, persists here in the United States... Historian Carol Anderson returns to This Is Hell. She is the author of the new book, One Person, No Vote, which has a forward by the U.S. Senator from Illinois, Democrat Dick Durbin. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Carol. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Chuck. It's great having you on the show. Carol was on the show back in June 2016 to talk with us about her New York Times bestseller and notable book of the year, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. White Rage was a National Book Critics Circle Award winner, named Chicago Review of Books Best Nonfiction Book, uh, Boston Globe Best Book of 2016, and we chose it as one of our favorite books to be featured on the show in 2016 as well. The concept of White Rage was that whenever 
there are any progresses, any progress that's made in black rights, there is a white blowback against those rights. So it's often three steps forward and two steps back. How much do you see white rage happening when it comes to black voter disenfranchisement? Uh, I see white rage all over black voter disfranchisement because one of the key pieces in white rage is that it's not what we often think of in the United States in terms of rage as in the Klan or um, cross burnings or Charlottesville Charlottesville tiki torches, but rage is uh, the policies, the the legal decisions. the ways that, that, that laws are drafted and written in these state legislatures that are very cool, very methodical, and very lethal to the basic rights of American citizens, particularly African Americans. Um, and so when you look at voting rights, that is exactly what you see. You're not seeing uh, the Klan there in front of the, the polling stations. But instead what you're seeing are voter ID laws, closed polling places, um, voter roll purges where people are knocked off the rolls illegally um, and too late to do anything about it before an election. That's what we're seeing. So are less overt acts of racism more, do they have a greater impact than more overt acts of racism? Um, To me, they really do. I mean, the overt pieces, um, that's like terror, right? It is designed to strike terror, Um, in a community, so that the community becomes paralyzed, it becomes um, afraid to to speak up. This is that smooth, quiet, subtle burn that has the legitimacy of legality wrapped all around it, so it makes it much more difficult to fight, much more difficult to to point out, um, and therefore much more difficult to take down. Um, Think about how like voter ID, it's based, it's premised on the lie of rampant voter fraud. But it's been said so many times in so many ways by so many respectable people that what we have now is like more than 50% of Americans believe that voter fraud happens at least occasionally. It doesn't. But you then get the, well, how hard is it to have an ID? Again, that kind of reasonableness. I mean, everybody needs to have an ID. You need an ID to to check out a book from a library. So how hard is it? And what we don't see are the ways that these laws have been crafted and manipulated to only identify certain types of IDs so that it's able to call out an entire swath of people so that politicians are able to choose their electorate instead of having the electorate choose who their representatives will be. Well, let's talk about the media coverage of this for a second, because you start by writing it was a mystery worthy of Raymond Chandler on November 8th, 2016. African-Americans did not show up. It was like a day of absence at the voting booth. Black voter turnout had dropped by 7% overall. Moreover, less than half of Hispanic and Asian-American voters came to the polls. This was without question a sea change. The tide of African-American, Hispanic and Asian voters that had previously carried Barack Obama into the White House and kept him there had uh, now visibly ebbed Journalist Ari Berman, who's been on our show in the past, called it the most underreported story of the 2016 campaign. But it's more than that. The disappearing minority vote voter is the campaign's most misunderstood story. We'll get to the misunderstood part in a moment. But in your opinion, why was it so underreported? And why 
Why was the low voter turnout among African-Americans so misunderstood? What does it reveal, I guess, more importantly, mm-hmm. about the media? What does it tell you about the media? It, it, it tells me so much. I mean, so one is that I think it was mis, um, not really reported because it didn't have the fire and the, the fireworks. It, you know, uh, media run to the fire, media run to the, the big explosion. This is that quiet, cool burn where you just don't see it. It's happening, but you just don't see it. And so how do you take this simple but complex story and make it visible? So that's what I'm I'm doing in this book. But I think that the reason why it was so underreported in terms of of, um, low black voter turnout was that there is an assumption that black people just don't vote um, and that black people need to be energized by Obama uh, to be able to go out and vote. Um, and that there's this, this, this kind of, of pernicious, you know, it's one of the things that I talked about in White Rage, a pernicious understanding of black pathology that is so devoid from reality, but it's one of those kind of consistent narratives. Um, What do I mean by black pathology? Um, That the problem in the black community is that um, black fathers just abandoned their kids. You know, if they had really strong, stable nuclear family homes, then all of the problems in the black community will be gone. You need that narrative, except that narrative isn't correct. Um, a CDC study, a recent CDC study, showed that black men, regardless of the relationship with the mother, spend more quality time with their children than men of any other race or ethnicity in America. Black pathology. You know, we've got all of these black thugs. That's why we've got them all locked up in prison, because they're criminals, because they're always doing drugs. Actually, no. <laughs> the war on drugs was a war on black people. Black people for uh, Wisconsin, um, for marijuana do drugs about the same rate as whites. For hard drugs like cocaine, they do drugs le- you know, less than whites. But they're overrepresented because they're hyper-policed in the criminal justice system. So that narrative of black pathology carries through into voting. So is seeing blackness as a disease at the heart of racism within white America? It is, yes. You know, I I did a piece um, in The Guardian saying that white supremacy was the most destructive drug in America because it is so powerful and so addictive, it will make folks um, forsake their God. It will make folks forsake their family. It will make folks forsake their country. Um, It will make them just work in an alternate reality where all they need is a hit of white supremacy um, and everything else can go by the wayside. And that's what we're seeing now. So uh, we're seeing how how being able to talk about... um, uh, a Muslim ban, being able to, you know, and, th- and this is me talking about Trump giving his base their hit of white supremacy and everything else be damned. So giving them a Muslim ban, giving them family separation at the border, uh, giving them um, um, these, these African s whole countries, um, all of those things 
feed that 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 desire and so the kinds of structural pieces such as our right to vote such as access to health care um, such as a quality infrastructure piece all of that goes by the wayside as long as they can get that hit of white supremacy and anti-blackness is at the core of that to what degree do you think those who support, uh, support this kind of voter disenfranchisement realize that, for instance, voter fraud is racist? Or do they rationalize it in some other way, like protecting the integrity of the vote and fighting against the th- or threat of things like voter fraud in a stolen election? Do you think that they are true believers in voter fraud? Or do you think this is nothing more than rationalization for racism? I think it's, I, I don't even think it's either or. I think it is so um, embedded in the thought process. So, for instance, uh, one of the major cases where the issue of the, the language of voter fraud arose was in the 2000 election in St. Louis. And there, uh, the St. Louis Board of Elections had illegally purged almost 50,000 voters off of the rolls and didn't tell the people. So when they showed up to vote, their names aren't registered on any of the rolls, and they're being sent downtown to the Board of Elections, whose records are a hot mess. Hours, it took hours and hours and hours to get the thing almost kind of sort of figured out. By that time, the polls are getting ready to close. And so the Democrats sue and get the courts to keep the polls open for three additional hours. The Republicans came in immediately and got a higher court ruling to shut down the polls. And, and the polls shut down at 745. What the Republicans said was that this was a case of a shocking, a brazen case of attempted voter fraud on a massive scale. And so what they're doing is they're identifying basically the city, St. Louis, as a site of massive rampant criminality. What we know in America is that blackness has been linked with criminality psychologically. You know, you say, oh, those urban areas, or you say, oh, Chicago, and that becomes the, the, the psychological link of criminality there. And so saying that there are, there's voter fraud, there's stealing elections. That's what Trump was saying about Philadelphia. That's what Kit Bond in Missouri was saying about St. Louis. It becomes, that's what Judge Roy Moore was saying about Birmingham. So it becomes part of a rationale that they fully, firmly believe. Radio Free also heard new music from the Laughing Hearts as part of the John Daly sessions. This track is called... This is it off their forthcoming release. I don't even care at all. And I don't think that I ever did at all. So please excuse my mistake. Cause I can't help but think it. Always the same thing This is it, 
everything you wanted Exactly how you wanted it So go ahead and get wrong I can take it, I can take it And I will get enough So how long must I stay? It's getting harder, it's harder With each day to come Go on, go on, go Everything you wanted Exactly how you wanted it So go ahead and get wrong Cause I can take it, I can take it And never forget enough So how long is that stay? Ooh. It's getting harder, it's harder this is it, this is it. Everything you want. Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpin' Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. 
Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Thank you.